0: This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local evening news from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening.
1: A Marquette Law School uh, Marquette Law poll indicates close races in both Republican and Democratic gubernatorial and U.S. Senate primaries in August here in Wisconsin, as well as in the November U.S. Senate race. The poll also found that incumbent Governor Tony Evers has an early advantage in the general election for governor. In the Republican gubernatorial primary, Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish are virtually tied with a quarter of the respondents supporting each candidate. Kevin Nicholson is supported by 10 percent. Tim Ramthon is the choice of 3 percent. One third of Republican primary voters remain undecided. In the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate, Mandela Barnes and Alex Lazry are each supported by about one quarter of the respondents. Sarah Godlewski is the choice of 9% and Tom Nelson holds 7%. More than one third of the Democratic respondents are undecided.
0: Wayne Strong, a retired Madison police lieutenant with a long and diverse record of civic and social engagement, died on Monday. He was 62, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Strong served as a community member on the Wisconsin State Journal's editorial board and was the co-director of the Southside Rangers Youth Football and Cheerleading Program. In 2013, Strong made the first of three attempts to win a seat on the Madison School Board followed by unsuccessful bids in 2014 and again in 2020. Just under a year ago, Strong joined the State Journal's editorial board as a community member. Retired Madison Police Chief Noble Ray remembers Strong not just as a close personal friend, but as a deeply involved community member with a passion for civic engagement.
1: And a moment of levity in today's news. Online voting to name Madison's trash and recycling compactors is underway. Among the proposals to name the electric trash compactor is Crush Farley and Rosie the Rubbisher. Among the proposals to name the electric recycling compactor is Flatten Oswalt, Compressica Simpson, and Lin-Manuel Squaranda. The Streets Division says it received over 500 unique naming suggestions. Voting ends Tuesday, July 5th. More info is online at cityofmadison.com slash news.
0: And those are the headlines. Now on to the rest of today's top stories. This morning, GOP lawmakers gaveled in and gaveled out a special legislative session on abortion access without taking any action. So Planned Parenthood pinked out the state capitol to call upon legislators to repeal an archaic law which will otherwise make abortion illegal when Roe v. Wade is overturned. Our reporter Tegan Carter has the story.
2: Demonstrators chanted in the Wisconsin State Capitol building this morning during the special legislative session to attempt to repeal Wisconsin's 172-year-old abortion law
3: it is our duty to fight for our freedom it is our duty to fight for our freedom it is our duty to win it is our duty to win we must love one another and protect one another we must love one another and protect one another we have nothing to lose but our chains we have nothing to lose but our
2: Planned Parenthood led the rally along with a speaking event, where Tara Stangler, a campus leader at University of Wisconsin, kicked it off with a discussion of representation of BIPOC and queer people in the conversation of reproductive rights.
3: Everyone is included in our, not just white folks, not just affluent folks, it is everyone. So the minute they come for any of us, they're coming for all of us. This is not just a you versus them, this is an us versus them, and we have to stop thinking about it from an individualistic standpoint. If you're going to stand here and look me in my face and say it is our duty to fight for our freedom, then that counts for everybody's
4: freedom, not just yours.
2: Darlene Johns, the Democracy Organizer at Black Leaders Organizing for Communities, or BLOC, expanded on BIPOC and queer representation. Johns also spoke on the lack of systemic support to help pregnant people who need medical care.
4: And
3: understand that this is everybody's issue because we don't have the infrastructure to support the ban that they're proposing. And it's a ban that they, largely, they, the Supreme Court, largely will not be subject to. Because they got the ducats, they got the dollars to do what they want to do to help the people that they want to help. We don't got that. I don't have that. So continue to organize, continue to speak, and continue to be loud.
2: Sarah Noble is a community advocate from Milwaukee and former executive director of the Reproductive Justice Collective. Noble talked about how abortion access intersects with the struggle for truly equitable rights.
5: Black people and other people of color know all too well that our rights, the rights that exist, don't always apply to us. When rights don't apply to all individuals at all times, they are not rights. There are conditional benefits that have inequitably, have been inequitably distributed. So for us, not having abortion access care will have dire consequences. Black people and other people of color, including youth, disproportionately experience far too many health disparities. We don't need to experience more harm like having to leave the state to access safe and legal abortion care.
2: Tanya Atkinson is the president of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Wisconsin. She ended the demonstration with a talk about love and the power it has within the movement for abortion access.
3: Love is what keeps us moving forward when we are so angry that a minority holds power and they hoard power, taking away the bodily agency and autonomy for millions across our nation and right here in our state of Wisconsin. Love is what energizes us to get up after we have our moments on our knees, sobbing in pain and disbelief because we know the irreparable harm that will be caused if abortion is not safe and legal. Abortion does not go away. It becomes unsafe. Love is what compelled us to be here today with each other in this moment to demand a different future for Wisconsin, for so our friends, our families, our neighbors. Love is what gives us the courage to speak from the rooftops that everybody deserves access to abortion, regardless of their reason or their race or their gender or their sexual orientation or their income level or their immigration status.
2: Planned Parenthood has stopped scheduling appointments past this Saturday, June 25th. That's in anticipation of the expected decision from the U.S. Supreme Court in the coming days. But Atkinson says they'll still be assisting people in need of a safe abortion.
3: We have relationships with the other states. We can help provide care on the front end. We can help people navigate to other states and access a safe and legal abortion. And we can be here for the people of Wisconsin who need an abortion when they come back home again. So we, we really encourage people, if you need an abortion, to please reach out to Planned Parenthood in Wisconsin, and we can help you.
2: Planned Parenthood plans to distribute Make-A-Plan pregnancy kits throughout the summer. The kits include emergency contraception, condoms, a pregnancy test, and more information on the threats to abortion access. Patients can receive a kit by visiting Planned Parenthood or making an appointment. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter.
1: The state capitol was packed earlier today as few state lawmakers reported for a special legislative session and protesters chanted in the rotunda, calling for legislators to do more to protect abortion access. For more on the session itself and what lawmakers had to say, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has more.
4: Today's special session, called on by Governor Tony Evers to address the state's 173-year-old abortion ban, lasted all of around 14 seconds. Senate President Chris Kapinga. The Republican senator from Delafield approached the bench in front of just a small handful of senators, mostly Democrats, before once again gaveling the special session in and right back out. Wisconsin's current law on abortion, written in 1849, would ban all abortions unless the mother's life is in danger. It also applies to cases of rape and incest. Last month, Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said that he would like to see exceptions for rape and incest in Wisconsin's law, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, but this was never brought up during today's session. After today's short session, state Democrats came out of the woodwork to criticize the lack of any action. Earlier in the day, top state Democrats held a press conference vowing to do whatever it takes to protect legal abortion access in Wisconsin. That press conference was led by Democratic Senate Minority Leader Janet Bewley and Democratic Assembly Minority Leader Greta Neubauer. Senate Bewley began by slamming the Republicans for their inaction.
3: In March, while knowing that a majority of Wisconsinites support legal access to abortion, Republicans adjourned the regular legislative session without giving legislation any consideration or debate. This is why today's special session is so important.
4: Representative Newbauer then took the podium to talk about her family's history supporting abortion access as Neubauer's grandmother taught sexual education and her mother volunteered at abortion clinics.
1: If the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down Roe v. Wade, it will be a brazen political act carried out by a blatantly partisan court corrupted
3: by appointments from a disgraced former president.
4: Dr. Eliza Bennett is a family planning provider and an OBGYN who performs abortions. Dr. Bennett says that she's worried for her and her patients' future.
3: Currently, in Wisconsin, my patients face many hurdles in order to practice this autonomy. However, despite financial, logistical and bureaucratic barriers, my patients still are able to access abortion care here in Wisconsin. If this law from 173 years ago comes back into effect, when women had minimal rights, no real agency or autonomy, they will be taken back to that time. They will lose their autonomy. I will lose my ability to morally and ethically care for my patients. Or if I choose to continue my practice, I will face criminal charges and jail time.
4: Democrats did not just speak up at the press conference today. In a press release, Governor Tony Evers characterized GOP in action by saying they failed to muster courage to perform a simple duty. Democratic Senator Melissa Agard of Madison was in the Senate chambers today and witnessed the 14-second session firsthand.
3: Unfortunately, I was not surprised, but I will say that I am disappointed um,
1: in the fact that my Republican colleagues are force-feeding their personal ideologies on the majority of the people in the state of Wisconsin.
4: But it's not just state lawmakers making their voices heard. Last night, the Madison Common Council passed a resolution officially opposing the presumed Supreme Court decision, as well as Wisconsin's abortion ban. The resolution also states that it supports the Madison Police Department in not physically arresting anyone who provides an abortion. In the latest Marquette Law School poll released earlier today, 58% of Wisconsinites say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while 35% say they think it should be illegal in all or most cases. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate wuggie Additional audio for this story was provided by Greg Chabosky.
0: Well, after today's special session, with the state's 173-year-old abortion law still on the books, as we've just heard, abortion access will shortly disappear in Wisconsin. But that doesn't mean that abortion access is disappearing everywhere. In addition to the interviews you just heard, our producer Nate Wegehaup also spoke with Planned Parenthood Illinois, about how they've been preparing for wisconsin's abortion ban this is a portion of their conversation the full interview can be found online at wortfm.org so just
4: just starting things off here bridget uh looking at you know once roe is overturned or if roe is overturned i guess we still have to say that uh are are you expecting an influx of -of out-of-state patients uh, once that happens, what, what do you think that's going to look like for Planned Parenthood Illinois?
5: We are expecting a surge of out-of-state patients because we know Illinois is surrounded by states that once Roe row is overturned, that access to abortion will be cut off almost immediately. And so we have been preparing for a number of years, and we've been doing it on the policy side with legislation that guarantees Illinois will protect reproductive rights. In 2019, Illinois actually enshrined reproductive rights in our state law. And uh, your decisions about reproductive health care, including abortion, will be protected by Illinois law. In addition, Planned Parenthood has been looking at where health centers are in Illinois and preparing to make sure that health centers can welcome patients from everywhere, from Illinois as well as from other states like Wisconsin. So... Just a couple of years ago during the pandemic, we opened our health center in Waukegan, Illinois, which is very close to the Wisconsin border. And we did that not only because there is a need in the community there in Lake County in Illinois, but also knowing that Wisconsin patients will need somewhere to go uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned.
4: And then is Wisconsin the only state that's surrounding Illinois that has a abortion ban or something similar to that where you are expecting uh, any sort of influx?
5: No, actually most states that border Illinois will be um, enacting a trigger law or some sort of pre-existing ban that has been uh, enjoined and not enforced since Roe v. Wade. One state that will need to take action is Indiana. They do not have anything on the books right now, but their governor has promised a special session in order to enact some sort of ban. So we do expect uh, that... Patients will start coming to us within days. We learned this when Texas banned abortion after six weeks. Our first patients from Texas fleeing that very restrictive law arrived in Illinois just two days after it came into effect. So we are gearing up, we are preparing, and we want people in Wisconsin and all of the states in the Midwest who are going to be cut off from care to understand that Planned Parenthood is here for them and that we will do everything possible to make sure that they get the care that they need.
4: And you mentioned that you're preparing there. What sort of things are you doing right now to prepare for the uh, influx of patients uh, you imagine coming in?
5: So one of the things is we've been working with our sister affiliates in other states. Uh, for example, we have been having conversations for months now with the affiliate that has a health center and provides abortion services in Madison. How can we coordinate and help make sure that, that, that patients get appointments, uh, that there is continuity of care, those kinds of things? We have been looking at our internal capacity. How can we expand and provide more appointments to make them available for, a portion, uh, for patients? Because we know that we're going to see, you know, 20 to 30,000 additional patients coming to Illinois. So we've been looking at that. We are also looking at at the governmental side. And while uh, Wisconsin had a special session, Indiana is going to have a special session, our General Assembly is actually talking about a special session, but to do the opposite, to look at the kinds of protections that providers need, as well as ways that they can ensure that we have access in in Illinois to build capacity um, and make sure that patients can get where they are.
4: I've been talking with Bridget Leahy with Planned Parenthood Illinois about how the organization is preparing for the outright ban of abortions here in Wisconsin. Bridget, thank you so much for your kind words and for talking with me here today.
5: Okay, thank you. And I appreciate you reaching out for the interview.
0: The time is now 624 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Yesterday, a very special canoe floated along Lake Wabisa. There, local elected officials joined members of the Ho-Chunk Nation as they offered the chance to paddle in a dugout canoe. It's one stop on a week-long journey along the Yahara and Rock Rivers. WORT reporter DeMorian Thompson brings us this report.
6: I walked down the path to the shore of Lake Wabisa. Along the shore, people are paddling a dugout canoe, coming to shore and going back out again. This canoe is special. It is handmade from cottonwood tree. It can hold up to three people, and as you get closer, you can see the marks left behind after it was dug out. The canoe has been made over the course of seven years, since 2015. Production kicked into high gear last fall around the same time as the historical dugout canoe was discovered in Lake Mendota. Carbon dating shows that the canoe last fall is estimated to be about 1,200 years old and was likely made by the ancestor of the Ho-Chunk people. As the historical preservation officer of the Ho-Chunk Nation, Bill Quackenbush, was involved in excavating the 1,200-year-old canoe last fall.
7: My name is Bill Quackenbush, and I work for the Ho-Chunk Nation, i also a ho Nation tribal member. I serve our tribe as a national the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer at this time, and uh, I've been working for our tribe for some 20 years.
6: And this week, Krakenbush is helping to bring more cultural education by leading this dugout canoe down the Rock and Yahara River. The paddling launched on Monday from Lake Mendota, and it will end this Friday on the Rock River in Beloit. Along the way, paddlers are making stops to show off their canoes, including today's stop at Lake Farm County Park. I asked Krakenbush more about the history of this canoe that was on the water this week. Hello, I'm Demarion Thompson uh, from Wharton News, and I just have a couple questions for you. How long did it take you to build the canoe? Boy, that, that there, that's a kind of a, a,
7: a loaded question. And then why I say that is that, uh, as Chris uh, Janes over here mentioned in, the, in their brief presentation, Uh, that we stood next to that dugout canoe as a live tree back in 2015. Uh, We had desires uh, to build that dugout canoe from that point on, and it was a long, historic process of how that unfolded. Um, It moved from two different locations where we moved from our office. It moved from Dane County up to Black River Falls in Jackson County, um, and it followed me through uh, the years there, and every spare moment that we would have uh staff myself the ones sitting behind me or, or and uh, or other folks they would come over there and they'd chip away at it a little bit uh, and i really never did it gather the the steam it really needed to be completed um, as wood as you know probably it does have a a, a longevity of life and uh, it was beginning to lose its bark and it was kind of looking kind of like wow that project's going to be a long project lo and behold a year and a half ago uh, our tribe reached out to create an educational grant that they had, had got and from that grant they asked for our division there to create uh, some um, educational curricula there that included using our culture to better educate our youth there and to prepare them for a better life and and through that process we kept thinking about that canoe and how we could work that into that and, and this is what it unfolded. Through that year and a half of real working on that dugout canoe we'd pick away on our own spare time we all have our busy days and and so what we ended up doing was taking the spare time there and devoting it toward the dugout canoe and we gave ourselves a date we gave ourselves june 20th in the year 2022 pandemic or not we're going to set this dugout canoe down someplace and we thought well we'll let's take it down the same lake that this dugout canoe this tree where it originated and from that point on that's what it was created Uh, so we can say we started 2015, but in reality in earnest it was last fall and that summer before there too that we decided in earnest to make the dugout canoe. Now, if we were going to make a dugout canoe today and understand what it takes to do it, definitely we wouldn't be using fire vole, definitely we'd be using hand alls, we'd be using mountain technology just as our elders would change and adapt and use the newest man, you know, technology of their time, no different than today. And so they would oftentimes see us after work in the dark in the winter, in the rain out there, chipping away at this dugout canoe there because now we had a goal, 2022, to reach, and we reached that goal. We're here today, and it's not perfect. If You go over there, it's got a few gouges in here that shouldn't be there. If you really wanted to get a picturesque dugout canoe, it probably isn't the one, really. But it is. To us, it floated, and that's all that matters. And then you say float or floated. I don't know, but it floated over here, and we're here on a, on. this will be our second day of a, a week-long journey that we're taking that dugout canoe, all the way down to Beloit, the confluence of the, of the nature of the confluence is where we're ending up with that dugout canoe, and uh, we're going to s- float quite a few different whole chunk in that float, anybody who wants to get in that uh, canoe, we're, we're more than happy to take them for a ride now, too, and so that is, in short, the history of that dugout canoe that we created here, and he talked about the history of the whole chunk living in this area and how many thousands of years that we had the ability to traverse across these bigger waters in dugout canoes because if you took you know birch bark or elm bark canoes that we also utilize to some effect um they would just be blown about out there on a day like today with that dugout canoe sails across there no problem whatsoever and that's why those dugout canoes are so valuable to our history and culture
6: from wort i am demarion thompson
0: is now 6.32 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host Rob McClure here with my co-host Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us.
1: 45 years ago, Elvis Presley played one of his last ever shows in Madison. Though the concert was historic and spectacular, it was nothing compared with the events leading up to it. Feature contributor Sean Bull looks at the influence of the King of Rock and Roll on this week's edition of Parks and Landmarks.
8: You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. In 1977, Elvis Presley's career was in decline. His river of multi-platinum singles had slowed to a trickle of gold. But the man's stardom was still at a level we all can only dream of. The crown of the king of rock and roll is a lifetime appointment. Even if Elvis's career had been going downhill for two decades, he was still one of the biggest names on the planet. You can bet there were still fans waiting to greet Elvis as he got off his plane at the Madison Four Lakes Airport on June 24th. It was one in the morning, but a small crowd welcomed the king as he entered a waiting limousine and was whisked away. In the late 70s, Stoughton Road was just about the eastmost edge of town. East Town Mall was just in its infancy, and Sun Prairie had yet to creep in to meet the capital city. But since Highway 51 takes commercial traffic from New Orleans to the UP, businesses along the route stayed busy. Of course, at one in the morning, busy isn't always a good thing. 45 years ago, a gas station occupied the corner of Stoughton Road and East Washington Avenue. At one in the morning, June 24th, 1977, the owner of the station sent his son to kick out the teens who loitered in the parking lot. As Elvis was conveyed to his hotel, perhaps he reflected on his performance in Des Moines a few hours earlier. Perhaps he thought of nothing, content to relax and watch the city roll by. But he was yanked back to reality as the limousine pulled up to the stoplight. Not 10 yards beyond the tinted glass, he beheld a gang of teenage boys beating down the gas station owner's son. He paused only for a moment, then told the driver to stop the car. The boys froze. There was no mistaking the sight before them. Elvis had leapt out of the limo, clad in his rhinestone-studded jumpsuit, layered under a black windbreaker. The king stood in his best approximation of a kung fu stance, sized up the boys through his gold-framed aviators, then declared, I'll take you on. What do you do? when the world's most famous entertainer intends to fight you hand-to-hand. You, dear listener, may never find out, but the boys that night decided to back down. Could they have beat Elvis in street combat? Probably. After all, he was a lone, out-of-shape, 42-year-old man. Regardless of whether they had the advantage, I think they chose wisely. It's basically always a bad idea to get in a fight with an officer of the law. See, Elvis had a hobby of collecting badges. As he toured the country, he would sometimes stop by a local police station and be presented with an officer's badge. Of course, many of these were honorary and anyway limited in effectiveness to the city he got them. But there was one badge, his collection's crown jewel, whose jurisdiction stretched from sea to shining sea. As it happened, Elvis Presley was an agent of the DEA. If you have a passing knowledge of Elvis' later life, it may surprise you that he was a fan of the Drug Enforcement Administration. This is the same man who, a couple months after the Madison incident, would suffer a fatal heart attack on the toilet because he was that constipated from the amount of painkillers he was taking. His ex-wife wrote in her memoir that the badge was a power thing, quote, With the federal narcotics badge, he could legally enter any country, both wearing guns and carrying any drugs he wished. That may or may not have been true, but I also think he genuinely wanted to make a difference. He saw street drugs as dangerous and didn't see the irony of his own substance abuse. Elvis's doctor later talked about the level of denial Presley held. Elvis, quote, "...didn't see the wrong in it. He felt that by getting it from a doctor, He wasn't the common, everyday junkie getting something off the street. So, in 1970, Elvis wrote to Richard Nixon, asking to be bestowed the badge and powers of an agent of the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Presley and the President met in the Oval Office, and by the end of the day, Elvis had his badge. He carried it everywhere, and when Nixon later folded the Bureau into the newly created Drug Enforcement Administration, Elvis added a DEA windbreaker to his offstage ensemble. In his letters to President Nixon, Elvis talked about using his narcotics badge to be an ambassador, a positive role model. He had his badge and jacket on him in Madison. But the thing is, he didn't need them. Down to his last day, Elvis Presley commanded respect beyond what any office or badge could give. That night in Madison, the man stopped a beatdown with nothing but his presence, his raw aura. Elvis helped up the station owner's son, shook hands with everyone involved, then stepped back into the limo and slipped away into the night. Just over two months later, Elvis Presley was dead. The gas station, too, eventually came to pass. The car dealership that replaced it put up a small gray marker stone along the sidewalk, with a plaque recounting the Elvis fight. But now, even that is worse for the wear. Even if the plaque didn't keep wearing out, a larger-than-life tale like this deserves better than some weathered gravestone to commemorate it. As it happens, a movie about Elvis is coming to theaters this Friday, 45 years to the day after he last graced our city. Will the movie include the karate incident? I can only hope so, but I'm not sure I would be satisfied with even that as a tribute. We have five years to make up something fitting before we hit the 50th anniversary, and I think I have just the thing. Remember Bucky on Parade? A few years ago, we collectively decided that our city would be better if it were sprinkled with 80-some life-size statues of Bucky Badger, each painted and themed differently. And we were absolutely right. I still think back fondly on the summer of 2018 when I would explore the city with friends, discovering a new Bucky each time we went out. Maybe I shouldn't infer a pattern from two instances, but if you count the 2006 Cow Parade, it seems we're due fiberglass statues every 10 years or so. Can you imagine if, in summer 2027, Madison was descended upon by dozens of Karate Elvis statues? At every turn, a brightly painted rock star, hands up, ready to defend the city. Not only would this be the perfect amount of fun and whimsical, it would provide closure on and recognition for an event which I still believe hasn't been covered enough. Just think about it. And until that day comes, thanks for listening. Thank you very much. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, my email is sean.bull at wortfm.org. For WORT News, I'm Sean Bull.
1: And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure.
0: Well, we didn't quite reach the same level with this week's heat wave that we did last week. We hit 94 briefly yesterday afternoon, uh, late in the afternoon. That's compared with 96 that we achieved last Tuesday. The dew points also held off being terribly oppressive until later yesterday, thankfully. Uh, Cracking 70 only around noon and eventually hitting 73 before the evening's cold front swept through. Incidentally, while it may sound like there wouldn't be a whole lot of difference between a 70 and a 73 degree dew point temperature, dew point can actually be somewhat deceptive if you're not familiar with how it measures. There's actually 13% more moisture in the air at dew point 73 than there is at dew point 70. So the impact just in that little space on your body's ability to cool itself is definitely noticeable. Uh, Our dew points today, by contrast, hover down in the mid-50s, which represents about a 50% reduction, actually, in the water content of the air as compared to last evening. So that would be from 18 grams of water per kilogram of air down to about 9 today. So anyway, that's your uh, dew point tutorial for the evening. Uh, we managed to avoid widespread rains here as we transitioned air masses later on yesterday. But if you had an eye on the radar in the evening, you will have seen that we were in a, just a small gap between two narrow lines of thunderstorms that were pressing eastward at us, and uh, actually growing towards each other from southwest and northeast, respectively. Not quite fast enough, though, to completely close in over us, so the few miles just around Madison generally got uh, only a trace or so of precipitation, though the cumulonimbus towers to all sides and the lowering sun were certainly lovely to look at. Well, we're in the process of breaking our pattern of early-week heat and late-week cool-off. We've seen that two weeks in a row. Uh, And perhaps reversing the trend, actually, as we get into next week, the early part of next week certainly looks cool, at any rate, and we'll see about how the warm-up may go after that. If you want to have a look at that pattern in mid-transition, you could do worse than pulling up the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT Weather webpage, which shows the last three days' worth of goings-on in the upper troposphere. At the beginning of that loop, back on Monday, you can see the extremely amplified trough-ridge-trough pattern that we had from west to east across the continent with the ridge and its heat about to break forward over us at that point. But then on the image, you can see the strong swirl of low pressure that dives through the western trough and up north with impressive vigor through the Dakotas yesterday before bearing eastward then towards Quebec, decapitating basically the upper ridge and leaving in its wake a nearly zonal jet stream, at least in a couple of segments, lying basically now from west to east across roughly the northern tier of states. So the map looks actually a lot like it did a couple weeks ago. Within that resulting pattern now, there's a, currently a little leftward-turning low-pressure circulation that's settling southeastward through British Columbia, which will be continuing to head in our direction through the coming weekend and into next week. That will help first lift warmer air back into the region starting tomorrow and continuing through Friday and early Saturday when a surface, a surface low spawned by the upper circulation will be lifting to our northwest through Minnesota and drag a cold front through here. The warming should be a fair bit more modest than what we saw just uh, last day or two. And the cold frontal passage is so far looking non-severe, uh, though we're likely to get a couple of good rounds of thunderstorms between uh, what will be concerted warm air and moisture advection Friday night and then the passing cold frontal boundary on Saturday. After that, we'll be uh, fairly cool through Tuesday, uh, possibly even cool enough to see some diurnal showers with uh, the deepening cumulus that we might have in the cooler, low-level air for a couple of days there. But anyway, back to tonight. The uh, remaining short cumulus this evening should dissipate with sundown, and skies will generally be clear with surface-high pressure passing overhead. Temperatures will drop to the low 60s on light northwesterly winds, which will come down uh, near calm. Tomorrow, backing southwesterly winds behind the departing surface high-pressure cell will increase to about 4 to 8 miles per hour by the late-day period. And that should allow temperatures to reach the mid-80s with the help of mostly clear skies, uh, perhaps with some passing high clouds as we get on towards evening. Uh, passing high clouds will then continue at least at turns through the overnight with, uh, lightly, uh, with lighter southerly winds holding temperatures up in the upper 60s. Friday, the departing high-pressure cell our east still looks to be strong enough to defeat any uh, precipitation or even a lot of debris cloudiness that might be generated by storms upstream. So I think skies will generally be clear at least through much of the day on stronger southwesterly winds, which will come up to 5 to 10 miles per hour. That should push temperatures close to 90, at least in spots. Uh, Generally, I think the upper 80s, with uh, dew points contained to around 60 degrees, so not terribly bad as far as moisture is concerned. That will change as we go into Saturday. Showers and thunderstorms look to be driven into the area as we get on towards Saturday morning by a low-level jet, which may focus moisture advection into a complex of storms that would lift northeastward out of Iowa as we get on towards dawn Saturday, at least through this area through about the first half of the day. Uh, that will take dew points up towards 70 for much of Saturday, but uh, hold the air temperature with the cloud cover and precipitation uh, to around 80 or so before a late afternoon cold frontal passage starts the thermometer downward again. Uh, we may see some renewed development too as that uh, uh, cold front approaches the area. Temperatures will drop to the low 60s overnight and northwesterly winds, and it will be breezy and cool just in the low 70s for the day Sunday. It's currently 82 degrees at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 58. Winds are out of the northwest at 7 miles per hour. Just a few high-base cumulus up over the station currently at 6,000 feet or so, and the w- barometer's falling slowly at 30.05 inches of mercury.
1: It's now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the fourth week of June, nineteen sixty-six, when the city took a stand against racial bias in private clubs. U.W. students protested the widening war in Vietnam. Doctor K. Clarenbach helped found modern feminism, and tragedy struck at the Henry Vilas Zoo. Here is time traveling Stu Levitan with tonight's Madison in the sixties.
9: They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, the fourth week of June, 1966. June 24th. The Common Council starts the process to end racial discrimination in private clubs by adopting a report from the Equal Opportunities Commission proposing six steps the city should take to ban such bias. Among them, that no new liquor licenses be granted to any private organization which practice invidious discrimination in their membership policies. Three private clubs in Madison currently follow the whites-only clause in their national charters, the Eagles, Elks, and Loyal Order of Moose. The Council agrees with the EOC recommendation that, quote, at some future date after 1969, those clubs also have to end their racist membership policies or lose their liquor licenses. In a not unrelated development, the Madison Board of Realtors may be inching away from its opposition to a new federal fair housing law. A majority of members attending the board's meeting this week vote against continuing to support their national board's longstanding opposition to fair housing as, quote, forced housing. But there aren't enough members present for a quorum, so the meeting isn't official, and the local board's longstanding opposition to fair housing remains in place. Tuesday afternoon, June 28th, three-year-old Ruth Ellen Friedman is with her mother, older brother, and some other children at the Henry Vila Zoo. The family is spending the summer in Madison because Ralph Friedman, an English professor at Princeton University, is about to start a guest lectureship at the University of Wisconsin. The youngsters all want to see the famous elephant Winky, brought here by the pennies and nickels of children in 1950. The mothers warn the children to stay back, but several crawl through an opening under the fence to approach the cage itself, Ruth Ellen with them. Erected in 1926 as temporary quarters, the small cage has bars that are ten inches apart. Ruth Ellen unknowingly teases Winky by stretching out her hand with popcorn, then bringing it back. Suddenly, the 7,500-pound pachyderm grabs the girl's wrist with her trunk and pulls her through the bars, flinging her down like a doll and stomping on her as everyone screams. Keeper Melvin Boley comes running as the elephant trumpets, but it's too late. Two days after the tragedy, the zoo begins blocking the opening. It's the first fatal accident at the zoo since 1934 when nine-year-old Jimmy Caravella was killed by a polar bear after he slipped while climbing a tree near the bear's cage and fell into the enclosure. Friends and neighbors send $75 to the Freedmen's, which they donate to the Madison Public Library in Ruth Ellen's memory. It's to buy preschool picture books in the children's room at the new main library, which this week celebrates its first anniversary. A special book plate will mark each volume indicating the gift. In fall, the zoo trades Winky in $3,500 to a breeding farm in Woodland, Washington for a 420-pound, 10-month-old elephant whom they call Winky 2. Winky is later moved to the Portland Zoo, where she resides until 1977, when she is moved to the wildlife safari in Winston, Oregon, where she dies in 1982 at age 35. On June 29th, about 250 students rally on the library mall to protest President Johnson's decision to bomb North Vietnamese oil supply targets near the city of Hanoi and Haiphong. Among those speaking are sociology teaching assistant Evan Stark, acting chair of the Committee on the University in the Draft, who compares the action to the atomic bombing of Hiroshima as, quote, an attack on civilization itself. And philosophy T.A. Robert Cohen, who says America, quote, is becoming known as a monster. In a not unrelated development, the Internal Security Subcommittee of the United States Senate issues a report alleging that political demonstrations at the UW and the University of California at Berkeley are backed by the Communist Party. The 41-page report calls the W.E.B. Du Bois Club, quote, the most direct link between the new left and the established communist apparatus, and names 13 individuals it says consciously follow the Communist Party line, including sociology professor Maurice Zeitlin, law professor William Gorham Rice, daily cardinal writers John Gruber and Don Bluestone, and others. The report is based on testimony in 1965 from former Madison radio commentator Robert Segrist. The students and faculty named dismiss Segrist's associations as ludicrous. On June 29th and 30th, UW Director of Continuing Education, Dr. Katherine Clarenbeck, Chair of the Wisconsin Commission on the Status of Women, is in Washington as a delegate to the Federal Status of Women Conference, where she plans to introduce a resolution demanding the Federal Equal Opportunities Commission enforce the gender-based provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. She's appalled when the women running the conference won't let her for risk of offending the Johnson administration. It crystallizes her understanding of the need for a national lobby like the NAACP to apply outside pressure. So she organizes a like-minded group of activists, starting with Betty Friedan, to sit together at the closing luncheon, and founds modern feminism. The eight women decide on the name National Organization for Women, NOW, which Friedan writes on a napkin. The organization's goal, to take the actions needed to bring women into the mainstream of American society. Others at the luncheon join the effort. By dessert, 27 women have put down $5 each, which Klarenbach collects, along with the napkin, becoming NOW's first secretary. In October, Klarenbach organizes the temporary steering committee that organizes NOW's founding conference, where she is elected chair of the board. And the Madison Youth Commission is recommending that businesses and organizations which hold teen dances continue to ignore two state statutes concerning age and parental escorts. State law currently provides that persons under 18 may not attend a public dance unless accompanied by a parent or guardian, and that curfew for persons under 16 is 10 p.m., Police Chief Wilbur Emery says starting to enforce the laws would probably end the growing activity of teen dances, but, quote, if I get an indication the public wants the law enforced, I will enforce it. The commission makes 10 recommendations, including that dance sponsors prepare a list of, quote, objectionable persons who are not allowed to enter. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Tegan Carter and our newest reporter, Demorian Thompson. Welcome, Demorian. Reed Kamai was on special assignment this evening. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan is our on-air engineer this evening, and Nate Whitey helped produce the newscast. Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
1: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.